Uh, friends, we hear a lot, don't we, these days about, uh, about holistic healing. Uh, we hear uh, a, a lot about making sure that a person is well, not just taking uh, one sort of ailment, but dealing with the person's total well-being. Well, I'm afraid those uh, trendy healthcare professionals that are uh, all about holistic healing, they're a couple of thousand years off the pace, I'm afraid. Jesus was on about holistic healing a couple of thousand years ago. Uh, physical healing was, of course, part of his practice. It was a part of Jesus' ministry. Uh, but that was only part of Jesus' ministry. He didn't want to stop there. Uh, I, want to, I want us all to see this morning that the love that Jesus had for those around him, the love that he has for you and me, doesn't simply stop at being physically well. He doesn't merely stop at making sure that we are free of physical disease. As we're going to see this morning, Jesus is uh, considering that, yes, our physical health is important, but even more important is our spiritual health, our spiritual well-being. There's always been a bit of a tension before we get into the Bible reading. There has always been that tension, hasn't there? I think in the Christian church about the the word and deed aspects of our call to ministry. Uh, some followers of Jesus are, are very keen to make sure that the word is proclaimed uh, and, and they emphasize preaching to make sure that, that souls are, uh, are saved. Of course, that can sometimes give the impression, I think, that, that as long as a person's soul is saved, then the other things in their life, their other issues don't matter so much. Other people are, of course, very focused on, on providing for people's uh, physical uh, well-being. And, and in debates like these, you have different people caught at different ends, different types of ministries. And you'll sometimes hear people say, well, the truth of the matter is, it's, the truth is somewhere in the middle. But this morning, I want to say to you that the truth actually lies in both extremes. Jesus is concerned about our physical well-being and he's concerned about our spiritual well-being well-being. It's a both-and situation. This story from Luke's Gospel tackles this issue of spiritual versus physical health. This story is only found in Luke's Gospel, which is interesting. So this story is unique to Luke. We've been following Luke these past few months. As we know, Jesus is winding his way back towards Jerusalem. And, uh, and, and this is a unique story in that it's a healing that Jesus performs via remote control. Jesus heals at a distance, and it's the only story in the Gospels where we have Jesus healing multiple people at once from a distance. So uh, this is a unique story in, in the Gospels. But the real uniqueness of the story, the real power of this story, I think, lies in what happens after the physical healing. Let's have a look. Luke chapter 17, verses... 11 through to 19. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. He was going into a village. As he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, on us. When he saw them, he said, 
go. Show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he'd been healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Let's pray. God of grace, capture our hearts, capture our minds in this moment. Amen. So we're told in the opening sentence that Jesus is up in the north between Samaria and Galilee when he's approached by ten lepers. Now, a bit of context straight out of the box for you. This is a triple whammy right here from Luke. Galilee, Samaria, and leprosy. This is a triple hit. Hard to see with our modern Aussie eyes and ears, but to Luke's original readers, this would have been, oh my goodness, what a terrible situation. He's up traveling in country that no good God-fearing Jew would really dare to show his face. It wasn't the sort of place you would normally find good God-fearing Jewish people. Uh, and of course, with the mention of, of leprosy, it is a, a final blow. What sort of a place is Jesus traveling in here? You see, any good Jew knew that you needed to steer well clear of anyone with leprosy. I'm sure I don't really have to labor the point about the danger that leprosy was back in those days. Uh, these days, of course, I'm reliably informed leprosy is quite easily cured. I think it's only a matter of, of a tablet form. So the fact that leprosy even still exists on the face of the earth is a bit of a, dis is a disgrace. But back then, of, of course, leprosy only had but one outcome, death. And in the meantime, as soon as you started showing any sort of signs of the disease, you were declared to be unclean. You had to remain isolated, without any contact with friends or family or indeed anyone from, from your community. So these guys are in a bad way. People in Jesus' day wrongly believed that leprosy, like many other sicknesses, was actually a, a punishment from God. These people were dealing with this disease because they deserved it. They'd done something to deserve this terrible, terrible fate. Of course, we know that that's wrong-headed thinking, but that was common belief back in those days. So in addition to dealing with this physical disease, these people were also cut off from their community. They were isolated. They were, they were cast out. Uh, Jewish law was very, very precise. That If you were a leper, you weren't allowed to come within a prescribed distance of, of anyone that was clean, of anyone that didn't have the disease. Right up into the Middle Ages, as a matter of fact, lepers were required by law to dress differently, to wear bells, to shout unclean ahead of them so that people around them would know to stay clear. 
There's a wonderful movie, as a matter of fact, called Molokai, about a leper colony uh, set on the Hawaii, Hawaiian island of Molokai, starring David Wenham. Uh, a wonderful movie. Check it out about uh, this, this debilitating disease back in the day. So here we are. Here we have ten precious souls. Ten people made and loved by God, forced to be kept distant from loved ones, from any other human con condition. These were real people with real hopes and dreams, families and loved ones. But now because of some accident of, of fate, they've obviously come in contact with this disease and they are now ostracized from their community. Their lives as they once knew them are as, as good as over. The news of a cure, news of a, at least a curing person who could cure this disease, well, it would be like news of the cure, uh, a cure for cancer had been reached today, or MS, or, 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 or dementia. You would do almost anything to get hold of it if you needed it. So, seeing Jesus on the road up in their part of the world they cry out to him in desperation, their friendless desperation. They cry out, standing at a distance, they cry out to Jesus, have pity on us. Now, Jesus does something very interesting at this point. He doesn't tell them to go and do anything particularly special. He doesn't command the disease to leave their body. He doesn't lay hands on them. He doesn't tell them to go and wash in the River Jordan. There's no making mud pies and putting it on their sores. He, he, he simply tells them, and get this, to just go and show themselves to the priest. See, the priests in those days had the power to declare someone clean. There are all sorts of, of skin diseases, and they were all treated with a, with a, a great deal of, of care and concern. But the priest had the power to declare you to be clean. Um, I struggle with various, well, I struggle with what I call a uh, technical condition called crappy skin. Uh, the doctors and dermatologists have it all, have given me all sorts of fancy sounding names. But I wonder back in these days if I might have been in this, in this situation. Quite often you'll see me with red blotches all over my body. But these guys, the only way they could really re-enter society, the only way I would have been able to live with my family or be in contact with any of you, would be to go to the priest who had the authority to, to declare me clean, to declare me to be, to be well. He tells them to go and show themselves to the priest just as they are. There's no indication here that Jesus tells them to go and do anything particularly special. These people, as far as we know, it did nothing to earn their healing. As far as we know, they did nothing to deserve this healing. This, friends, is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the grace of Jesus at work. They did nothing to deserve it. No strings attached. This is just a simple act of love and of grace. A free gift. Freely given. This is amazing, friends. This is mind-blowing. This is scandalous stuff from Jesus here. He's He's standing against the religious authorities of his day, and indeed the legal requirements of his day. The legal community and the, and the religious community were so intertwined. Jesus standing against all of that and just saying, in their unclean state, go and show yourselves to the priest. 
which was an incredible act of faith on the part of these 10 people because they know that in this condition, as they are, they're not going to be allowed anywhere near the priest. So it was a significant act of faith from these 10 men to actually go. Jesus tells them to go out of his free love and grace, freely given, and indeed, they go. This is a huge step of faith for these men. They go despite worrying. They must have thought, we're not going to be allowed anywhere near the priest, but we, but we trust you, Jesus. So here I think we have our first little takeaway from this story. Sometimes you're just going to have to step out in faith. Don't wait until you've got all the boxes ticked. Don't wait until you've got all your theological ducks in a row before coming to Christ and accepting what he has for you. I encounter this all the time. Pete, I couldn't come to church. I haven't got everything right. I don't. Just, just come. Just turn up. They're a nice bunch of people, I promise. Just come along. You'll be warmly welcomed. We're not going to give you a theological test. Just come as you are. Don't wait until you've got everything sorted out. This is the scandalous nature of God's grace. He welcomes you just as you are. And also think too, have you ever been in that situation where someone put a little bit of faith in you, a little bit of trust in you? You weren't really quite sure if you were up to the task, but you decided to take it on and, and you know what? It actually worked out okay. Or indeed maybe you put faith in someone else and encouraged them to just give it a go and they discovered they were actually capable of more than what they originally thought. Jesus tells them to simply go. And in a step of faith, like we heard last week, if you were here last week, with even just a mustard seed's worth of faith, you can command a mulberry tree to be uprooted and planted in the sea. These men take this step of faith to go to the priest and on the way they are healed. Praise God. But you know what? That's not even the interesting part of this story. Though that wasn't amazing enough, the really interesting stuff is, is yet to come. See, Luke tells us that one of these men actually returned. One of these ten people who had been healed came back to thank Jesus. And he was a Samaritan. Have you ever been to those kids' plays, those pantomimes where the baddie, the, the villain comes on stage and you're all expected to yell out, boo, boo, behind you, behind you. It's a little bit like that. For good Jewish people's ears, hearing this phrase, a Samaritan, you were supposed to think villain of the piece, a foreigner, a, a person who wasn't quite right with God. Jewish people were taught to, to hate the Samaritans from a very young age. But here he is, this Samaritan coming back to thank Jesus. Think too, because he's a Samaritan, he couldn't actually go and see the priest because he wouldn't have even have been welcomed. Think about this, church. Even if he wasn't a leper, he's still unclean. He wouldn't have been welcomed at the priest anyway. He had nowhere to turn. Where was this man going to go? Healed of his leprosy, yes, but still alone. 
So to whom could he turn? Well, of course, the story tells us. He turns back, praising God in a loud voice, and he prostrates himself, throws himself at Jesus' feet in thankfulness and worship of Jesus. Aesop, the ancient Greek philosopher, said, said that gratitude is a sign of noble souls. Gratitude is a sign of noble souls. As a parent or as a volunteer at church kids clubs or, or as a volunteer on the local school sort of tuck shop, you realize pretty quickly that gratitude doesn't come automatically to human beings. It's got to be taught. You realize pretty quickly that some kids actually aren't particularly thankful for what they've been given. You realize that the concept that I've been freely blessed, freely given for something that I didn't earn or deserve doesn't actually click. That in fact many kids and indeed many adults never really grasp this concept of the benefit of, of giving thanks to both themselves and to the people around them. The big bullying, loud, raucous, selfish, self-absorbed kids elbow the other kids out of the way and push their way to the front of the line for the goodies and the cakes and the lollies to get whatever they want for themselves without a thought to say thank you at all. I was leading kids club, you'd have them line up and all the big bully, you'd be up the front, right, stay there and I'd take it around and serve the quiet kids up the back first. They thought it was incredibly unfair, the kids up the front. But it was an illustration that I used, just a simple one to see, to tell them about the nature of of God's kingdom about the last being, being first. Study after study has shown that people who are thankful, people who show gratitude are happier. Grateful people are happy people. There's even some evidence to suggest that people who are grateful are even healthier. They sleep better. They get sick less often. So no matter the circumstances that come your way, if you remain grateful for what you have, you're likely to be happier and a more contented person. But this man gets it. This man throws himself at Jesus' feet, thanks him for what's happened. Note too, his, he couldn't stand, he couldn't simply bow. He throws himself at Jesus' feet, an act of complete surrender, an act of complete worship. It's a really moving scene when you think about it. You think about all that he's been through to this point. You think this man thought his life was over. He's lost contact with friends and family and now he's healed. The only appropriate response is to throw himself in gratitude and thankfulness and worship at, at Jesus' feet. And then we're still not done and then the really interesting part of the story comes along. At this point, Jesus again says something very interesting. He says, get up. Be on your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, what's so amazing about that? Jesus says things like that all the time when he heals someone. And that's true. But think for a moment about the context, about to whom it's said and when it is said. How many people were, were healed? Ten. How many were truly made well? Just the one. It reads as though Jesus is distinguishing between this one and the other nine. So what, what does this mean? It seems to me that Jesus is 
distinguishing between being physically healed and being truly made well. I think all too often as Christians, we think our job is done when we're only halfway there. Too often Christians, we seem to be only concerned about the person's soul and a little bit apathetic about their worldly needs. Down throughout history, the church has been guilty of this, uh, the plight of much of, of Africa or Asia, where the gospel has now reached most parts of these places. The gospel has now reached most parts of this world, but wherever missionaries or Christians would go and bring the good news of Jesus Christ without also having a concern for the way these people live or a concern for their basic physical necessities, then frankly it, it makes a mockery of the gospel. But this story sort of warns against the opposite of that, doesn't it? It warns against only addressing the people's physical needs and offering nothing more. It's a constant trap for Christians who work with the poor or the needy. If, we, if people are physically cured but are spiritually unwell, if, if the hungry are physically fed but spiritually starving, and if the homeless are sheltered but are still spiritually destitute, then we haven't really done our job. They haven't really been made well. Jesus calls us to be committed to the whole person. Our cultural obsession today with, and look, Bondi Junction seems to be particularly big on this. There's always beautiful bodies in their work out here, in their active wear, wandering up and down the mall. Plenty of perfectly tanned and toned bodies other than myself, Bernie, wandering up and down the mall. But too often, I think, a beautifully sculpted, beautifully toned body isn't matched with a correspondingly beautiful soul. I think such people are not truly well. They're not truly healthy. This leper's physical ailment was cured. He recognized it was God at work. And then he responds in a fuller way. And then he's truly healed. I wonder, too, Christians, if sometimes wherever we ever really realize exactly what it is we've been cured from. Leprosy is but a 24-hour head flu by comparison to this particular disease, I reckon. Our disease isolates us from one another. It isolates us from God. Our human genetics, the human condition, sadly means we're born into this dis-ease. It's called sin. It separates us from God. All too often we think of this terrible dis-ease as something that's normal. So we take it for granted with a shrug. Oh, well, everyone's got it. No big deal. We hide it. We deny it. We mask it. We try to redefine it. We become so contorted and corrupted in our sin, paralyzed and perverted in our minds that we think that reality is a lie and a lie is reality. Friend, simple matter is this morning that you and I are just like those ten lepers. Each of us is a leper in our own way. Like them, every one of us can't but approach God with a simple cry for mercy. All we can do is cry out for mercy from Jesus. Have mercy on me, a sinner. 
the start of today's passage, we're told what Jesus is doing. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem to deal with the root cause of this disease, our sin. He's on his way to take all of this dis-ease from each of us into himself. He's going to become a man of sorrows, scourged, and it's by his bloody stripes on his back that you and I are healed. Praise God. He was afflicted with our disease. He took the punishment for our sin. The isolation from God is gone. The rejection is gone. Jesus is the cure for our terrible disease of sin. So have you been restored back into a right relationship with God by accepting Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, as your Saviour, by accepting the healing that he freely offers to all. And what about we as a church family? How are we going about bringing healing to the world? We are called to bring healing to the whole person. We're called to be a therapeutic community that heals. Healing should be present here within us. We look out for each other. We bring healing and wholeness. We we pick each other up physically sometimes, emotionally and spiritually at other times, and help each other on the journey. That healing should be present here. It should overflow out of us, out into them all, out into the streets of, of Sydney. When we come together to sing songs of praise, we're like this leper, and we're throwing ourselves upon God's mercy. We're expressing our thankfulness to God for all that he has done for us. I often wonder, can you really stand at a distance like those ten lepers and truly be healed? I mean, if you're still standing at a distance rather than bowing at Jesus' feet, can you really say that you've been healed? Can you really sort of wonder, yes, I've, this, I've, I've taken this for myself. I reckon true wellness, that is salvation, freedom from sin and death and thankfulness go hand in hand. So let me close by asking you a few questions. How's your health? How's your health? Do you need a bit of a checkup? Need a spiritual checkup? How's your total well-being? Have you truly been healed? Do you need to stop standing at a distance and come and fall at Jesus' feet in adoration? Say, Lord, I'm yours. Come and bring me healing and peace and well-being. Perhaps you know somebody else that is in need of such healing. Perhaps you can offer a healing word. Perhaps you can take the love of Jesus Christ to someone that is in need of it, body, mind or spirit this day. Because church, know that in a perfect world, I think, and for the members of the medical profession here with us this morning, don't take it the wrong way, but in a perfect world, I think the church would work all of our doctors and nurses and hospitals out of a job, amen? In a perfect world, the church would... Well, I'm glad to see you nodded at that, Alex. That's, I'm pleased to hear that. And in a perfect world, we, the church, would be working all of the psychologists and psychiatrists out of a job. And in a perfect world... We'd be working out of a job that most superfluous of professionals in our society, the ministers. Amen? <laughs> Hallelujah for that. Wouldn't that be a great day? I'm going to leave you with a video. I'm going to leave you with a video of healing. I'm going to leave you with a video. Uh, I know many of you are familiar with Joni's story. Joni uh, Erickson Carter is, is a... Well, I'll let her tell the story. But what I like about her story is that in her particular case, 
God has elected to not heal her physically. She still struggles with her physical condition, but she sees and will tell you that she has received something far more profound, far more valuable. Thanks, Guy. I grew up in a very athletic family, tennis, horseback riding. My earliest memories of um, hearing about the God of the Bible, though, was around the campfire on the beach of the Delaware shore with my sisters, my mom and dad, hearing stories of Noah, David, Moses, Daniel. But God really, really, he, he really wasn't very personal. All that changed, though, when I was a 14-year-old kid, went away on a kind of a church weekend retreat. And I was challenged by the speaker. He said, kids, I want you to measure your lives up against the Ten Commandments. Well, I had never committed adultery or I don't think I, I stole anything in a big way, but you know what, it, it didn't matter. As I measured my life up against those commandments one by one by one, oh, I, I got this overwhelming sense that I'm missing the mark. I'm not gonna make it. Oh God, help me. It troubled me at first that God gave us a bunch of commandments that he knew very well we couldn't keep. But then it hit me at that weekend retreat. It hit me, that's why Jesus came he was the one who kept the commandments. He was the one who obeyed the law, even though I didn't and even though I couldn't. I was only 14, but um, I was able to reach out right then and embrace Jesus and say, I, I need you. I, 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 I want to make it out of earth alive, and you're my only passport, so please. Well, I came home from that weekend retreat, all fired up, all pumped, all excited. But then um, through high school, um, the enthusiasm of what I had done began to wane, especially when I started confusing the abundant Christian life with the great American dream. My prayers were so self-centered, like, uh, God, help me to lose weight. God, I need a new boyfriend. God, give me good grades on this test. Unfortunately, I guess I thought I had done God a great big favor by accepting Jesus as my Savior. And I remember right around my senior year of high school, I, I prayed, Lord, I, I'm, not, I'm not doing this Christian thing right, and I know it. I don't want to go off to college and defame your good name, smear your reputation. I know it's about far more than just me, so do something in my life to jerk it right side up, because I'm really living this life wrong. Just a few weeks after high school graduation, as I was preparing to head off to college, my sister Kathy invited me to go to the beach for a swim. I swam out to this raft, athlete that I was, I didn't even touch bottom, hoisted myself up onto it and then took this really stupid dive into what ended up being extremely shallow water. I snapped my head back when I hit bottom and it crunched my fourth cervical vertebrae, severing my spinal cord. There I was lying face down in the water, desperately hoping that my sister Kathy would please notice that I had not surfaced from my dive. Unbeknownst to me, her back was turned to me. She didn't even see me take that dive. But a crab bit her toe, and it so startled her that she quick turned around in the water screaming to me, Johnny, watch out for crabs. And when she did, she saw my blonde hair floating on the surface. I was face down, ready to drown. She came swimming quickly, pulled me up out of the water, and I never, I never was so grateful for fresh air. She saved me, but 
for what purpose, for what reason? Because now, lying there in a hospital, doctors told me I was going to have to sit down for the rest of my life as a quadriplegic without use of my legs or, or even my hands. My hands don't work. And I remember thinking, God, is this, is this your idea of an answer to a prayer to be drawn closer to you? If it is, you're never going to be trusted with another one of my prayers again. I mean, I'm a new Christian. How could you have taken me so seriously? I sank into deep depression. I, I remember there were wonderful Christian friends who came to the hospital and they encouraged me. And one Bible verse they shared was from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, where God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans not to harm you, but to help you, plans to prosper you and to give you a hopeful future. God, you, you mean you plan not to harm me? Well, what do you call quadriplegia, huh? What's that all about? As I read that verse and the context around it, I realized something, that when God said that, he was saying it to his children who were being dragged away into captivity by, by the Babylonians. They were going to exile. They were going into slavery. They had decades in front of them of hard, awful suffering. And I began to see that God's plans for a hopeful future for me was not necessarily jumping up, dancing, kicking, doing aerobics, running, walking, getting back use of my arms and my legs. No, God's plans for me go far deeper, a deeper healing, a precious healing of the soul. Because as I was pushed into the arms of God every morning, and that's the truth, even to this day, don't be thinking I'm an expert at quadriplegia. But as it was then in the hospital and as it is today, every morning I wake up saying, Jesus, I can't do this thing called life. Please help me. Please show up. Give me your smile. Give me your strength because I can't make it through the day. And because I go to God with that earnest dependency and, and requirement of His grace every single day, I take that back. No, every single moment I experience the sweetest, most precious, most intimate union with Jesus Christ. So in Jeremiah 29, when God says He won't harm us, doesn't mean the body, doesn't mean our circumstances. He's not going to do anything to harm our soul. Yes, our body may get harmed, but it will somehow serve to enrich our soul. In closing, let me just say that quadriplegia 46 years of it, that's a long time. I deal with chronic pain. I, um, I had breast cancer a couple of years ago, and I remember, I remember as my husband was driving me home in the van from chemotherapy one day, we were talking about how suffering is like little splashovers of hell, kind of like waking us up out of our spiritual slumber. And then we, we pulled in the driveway and he said, well, then what do you think splashovers of heaven are? Are they those easy, breezy, bright times where everything's going your way, where you have health? And we said, no. Splashovers of heaven are finding Jesus in your splashover of hell. And to find Jesus in your hell is ecstasy beyond compare. And I wouldn't trade it for any amount of walking in this world. Jesus, she wouldn't trade it for any amount of walking in this world. What a marvelous testimony.